0: Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. And welcome to the next installment of the y 87 podcast. With me today is our classmate, Karen Painter. Welcome, Karen.
1: Thank you, I'm delighted to be here and I'm excited about our reunion.
0: Oh, excellent. It's great to get the plug in early. It's June twenty twenty two in person, in Pearson. So hopefully we can all make it. Excellent. So why don't we just tell everybody what what are you up to these days? Where do you live and what do you do?
1: I live in Minnesota on five acres, which was helpful during the pandemic. We actually have seven ducks. And a variety of other animals. I just completed a few weeks ago a book on the politics of mourning, which was a really tough subject to be working on. Again, during the pandemic, it's mostly on World War One, World War Two, and the Nazi period.
0: So, when you say you were working on it, like this is a book you've written?
1: I write. I sent it off. I wrote it a few years ago. I made a number of changes some major surgery, and I, I finished the final revisions a couple weeks ago. So,
0: Oh, how exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Now, this is not your first book. You're an academic, and so you've written about this time period before. Is that right?
1: Right. This is a little bit later. My first book was on Mahler and Bruckner. It was more of an aesthetic study, how patterns of listening changed in the decades around 1900. And so yeah, this was a move forward, and I ended up expanding it to include poetry by women during World War I, especially some World War II, and also Holocaust survivors and their approaches to mourning.
0: What drew you to the topic of mourning?
1: It was actually a conference several years ago on a tragedy in German culture. And so I commissioned to write something on that. And I found it so gripping. I I figured out that actually there was a suppression of mourning during the Nazi period. We think of that as a period with a cult of the dead, but actually, especially during World War II, when there were fresh bodies to mourn, it became very difficult to have tragic music and rites of mourning. So I explore that phenomenon that you have uh, the last two years of the Third Reich Nobody published any requiems.
0: Interesting. But then you went and looked at non-musical literature, poetry, you just said, how did you get sources? How did you find people who are writing about it in a way that you could unearth and then stitch together in an analysis?
1: Um, most of the sources are available in archives and on the web. There's a wonderful resource that Steven Spielberg set up at USC, 50,000 videos of Holocaust survivors. So that was a very rich resource for me. As well, poetry that so women wrote that was set to music for World War I. Women became the locus of mourning for that society. So it's, again, mostly Germany and Austria.
0: And so what did your research find? What were the themes that came out of the, the expressions of mourning you studied?
1: Well, it's, the book, again, is on the politics of mourning. So I was looking at pressure on different sectors of society not to mourn. I was looking at the feminization of mourning. So it's not something that German men, that German soldiers do, but it was pushed to the side, a kind of a locus for women. And then I looked at the period after Kristallnacht, when there was only one newspaper that Jews continued to publish and, and there was only one place where Jews could perform. And I look at the programming there and how that's a tacit, a kind of a silent response to the tragedies around them.
0: So the politics of mourning, i never really thought about it as a political thing, but I suppose it is. We're seeing that play out in the last 24 months. How do we mourn those who've passed away due to COVID, how do we even talk about it? Can we talk about it? And then if so, how? Because it seems like there are different parts of our society that are, are talking about and thinking about those that have been lost differently. Does your research or your, your analysis apply? Have you thought about how it applies to the situation our country's in? Because there are parallels between the World War I period, for instance, and the pandemic then and the pandemic now.
1: Uh Well, I have noticed, um, especially when Trump was president, there were various, you know, some of the statements that he would make that showed a lack of empathy. I think that there were a lot of scholars pointing out parallels in the Nazi period and Trump. And that was very concerning to me, the lack of engagement with the tragedy and the inability to mourn.
0: So you've also studied classical composers. I know you, you mentioned Mahler earlier, and you've, you've written about many others. What drew you to classical music to begin with?
1: I was a failed pianist at Yale, but Yale has a very strong musicology program, which is sort of like the equivalent of the English department. So it's, it's historical and analytic work on music. So I, I loved that major and, and remained in that field.
0: And you ultimately got your PhD, correct?
1: Yes, at Columbia
0: And now you are a professor at the University of Minnesota. That's right. And you you teach a, a freshman seminar I've read about talking about the use of music in politics, particularly in Nazi Germany. Can you tell me about that?
1: Sure. I started that my very first year and students found the title bizarre. the, you know, music in Nazi Germany, pairing music in Nazi Germany. They know very little about it. Maybe they've seen one or two films, but it's a really good way to explore the interconnections between music and politics, and also some of those issues in music today, the status of violence in music. Do you blame the artist? You know, how do you separate the artist and the artwork? So students find these issues gripping.
0: So do you think about the rhetoric of musical composition and how that translates to political rhetoric? Exactly. How do you draw the connections between the music and the politics?
1: That's more in my scholarship. I think students, when they take one music class, it's a freshman seminar, so they don't need to be music majors. I think they should really look at blockbuster works that were important in the Nazi period. So I tend to focus on those. I've actually, you know, like it or not, become kind of a leading expert in a very small pond, which is music composed in the Nazi period. And so I I know a lot of bad music, and I am careful in my scholarship not to be unearthing scores that belong in the concert hall. So I'm used to that, and I'm interested in how it was programmed, how it was used, and especially the change that I see with hundreds of composers towards national socialism.
0: So when you're saying programmed, you mean how it was put on, where it was played, that kind of thing?
1: What was performed on Nazi holidays? How did that change over time? Some of the important Nazi holidays became occasions to honor the dead during World War II. So I, I look at what was broadcast on the radio. Gradually, with the Kirchenkampf, the fight between the church and the state, uh, we see commemoration removed from the church. So there's a more limited repertoire of what can be performed in church.
0: Interesting, interesting, yeah, I definitely see that you know music can be evocative, I mean, we have musical pieces that we play, you know we have pomp and circumstance, which is you know we play at graduations, and it evokes sort of a majesty and a it has a cultural significance, just the piece of music in and of itself, which is interesting because I don't think that's what the purpose of that particular piece of music was when it was first uh, performed. but is that the kind of thing that you are looking at is how music was used as a trigger? Yes or uh, to evoke particular passions?
1: Right. So I look at concepts of heroism in the Nazi period, how that changed, what made a work heroic. And I mostly understood what contemporaries thought about these scores, not our own engagement with these scores, which I think shouldn't even be performed.
0: So how do you deal with students today compared to how you started dealing with students early on in your career about these you know fraught topics i think that and i don't see that the the topic itself is fraught but they're difficult things you're talking about period of history that is painful and now gets talked about a lot has the way you talk about them these issues changed over your career
1: Yes, I would say over the last 4 years we've seen a lot of an increase in in mental illness in general with students and it's kind of across the board it's a generational problem. So I need to worry about trigger responses on the part of students. Something that's exciting that's developed very recently for me in my job is that we have a lot of students from China. So in a graduate course now that has 29 doctoral students, 19 of them are from China and not Chinese American. And so that poses an enormous challenge they've never discussed music and politics. And many of their reflections actually would get them in trouble back home. So sometimes I need to grade their material and then delete it so that, you know, spyware that there's just no trace of that, those reflections that they have.
0: Wow. Now, has the way you've, you've taught undergraduates changed? I, the way you think about the school experience for them, the classroom, the way you run it, has that changed?
1: Yes, I am trying to move more towards dialogue. I think that's a a skill that students need to work on a lot. Writing is a huge challenge. So um, everything is electronic. So students are all writing in their docs for class. So in general, I'm just trying to pose a lot more questions rather than being the expert because, yeah, I think otherwise that would miss the point if I just gave a bunch of lectures on Nazi Germany, which... I can certainly do by now after all the years. I tell students I've been working on the Nazi period more years than the Nazi period lasted.
0: Well, there's a lot to think about and, and dissect there. So I think it's probably justified. So what has the events of the last few years, particularly around social justice, has that impacted the way you approach your work, the way you, you and your colleagues think about classical music and what it is that you're teaching and talking about?
1: That's been a huge change, I think, in most institutions in the U.S., most universities and colleges, and particularly in Minnesota. We, we need to change, and it's been very difficult to bring that about. So I teach every spring a survey of 20th and 21st century music. So I, in the wake of George Floyd, I changed that course. This semester, I'm teaching a course that is decentering music. So it's everything that we don't think of with classical music. Music in China, music in Central and South America, music by Black Americans, classical music by Black Americans. So it's exciting. It's not easy, age 56, to be learning a lot of new tricks, but I think that's important. And it creates kind of a level playing field of exploration with the students.
0: I think that's got to be very challenging when you're dealing with classical music because the canon has been so dominated by you know, white male composers. How do you go out and find previously ignored or or undervalued composers? How do you think about new composers? Where do you go to hear the new cutting edge kinds of things you're talking about? Or even if it's not cutting edge, it was just ignored before. How do you explore?
1: Well, happily, it's it's a sea change that we see across musical life. I went to the Opening of the Met season this year, Fire Shut Up In My Bones, since we're teaching that work, and actually Terrence Blanchard is performing in Minneapolis in a couple of days. So I think across the board, whether it's the Boston Symphony Orchestra, institutions are transforming fundamentally, and, and there's a lot of new material on the web. So it's just a, a question of, of doing it fast and, and thoroughly rather than any kind of tokenism. That's the risk that we want to avoid.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known, the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the conversation. Are there any pieces that you've heard in the last year or so that you are particularly excited about and you think we should all run out and listen to?
1: Um, There's been a resurgence of interest in William Grant still, who's always the Black composer who's mentioned in surveys, but happily now a lot of new works by him are included. Florence Price is another example. So it's exciting to see all of these changes. And I think it also kind of undoes some of the arrogance in the field, which is bound not to last anyway, you know, as opposed to sort of going and thinking, you know, what's the single most great work that I can hear in the concert hall? You hear something that's exciting and moving and gripping and something that stimulates your discussion. So I think in some ways, classical music should become more like the theater, where if you see a show and you're not through by it. There's a lot of interesting things to discuss about it. Rarely do people walk out in the middle of a theater, which is behavior that we saw in past generations in classical music, kind of sticking your finger in your ears. And the point of going is to be titillated and inspired and excited by music, not to go hear sort of ossified works that have been in the repertoire for centuries.
0: If you had to choose the kind of concert experience that you would suggest to a a neophyte to classical music, is it the big concert hall? Is it more an intimate setting? How does someone who wants to, maybe hypothetically at 56 years old, want to get more informed about classical music? Where should they go and listen and what should they listen to?
1: Typically, symphony orchestras are considered the most accessible classical music. And chamber music, which has a focus on the interaction between the voices and there's a kind of intellectual component to it often, that would be a little bit more of a connoisseur art. I think opera is spectacular and um, is so accessible these days, the kinds of topics, the gorgeous staging, and often directors are pulled from the world of film. So that's, you know, if you have access to opera, that's a wonderful entree.
0: If there's a concert, a historical concert that you couldn't have gone to, and you could say, oh, I can get transported back in time to hear a particular concert, what would it be?
1: I've just been studying with students the premiere of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring in Paris, and they're just fascinating issues there. It's a famous riot that took place, and it would just be so exciting to be there and to understand why it was so problematic, because the French love to be shocking. You'd have individuals from the fashion world would go to these premieres, so it's not kind of the traditionalism that you associate with a British or a German classical audience. So I think it'd be exciting to be there and to kind of catch the, the fervor of the moment. So
0: Stravinsky's work started a riot, is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, that's kind of the most famous riot in music in 1913.
0: Wow, I had no idea. I guess I gotta re-listen to Stravinsky. Excellent, excellent. So one of the things that you did back in our Yale days was you served on a committee that was looking at the curriculum, as I remember. Is that right? That's right. And so what were you doing? And if you had the the opportunity to go back and talk to yourself when you're on the committee about the curriculum, what would you say?
1: Well, I'm probably the loudest critic now of our stodgy curriculum, which is actually a three-semester march through music history, mostly white men. And happily, I think as of a week ago, we're going to dismantle that. But back then, my peers and I thought that it was too much of a rush to get through music history history in two semesters. So we ran a large survey in the hopes of getting data that would lead the School of Music to expand it. And I think they did the smart thing by sticking to what they had. So you kind of get all of history in two semesters, and but then you take a series of electives. I think probably Yale's a little bit behind Harvard in terms of dismantling the survey right now. Harvard doesn't have any survey of music history, which seems shocking. Really? So we will see how that develops over the next semesters.
0: Interesting. Interesting. You're now at a a large state university. How would you think about the kind of musical experience that your students can have there compare that to an East Coast university?
1: Um, That's a good question. We are a school of music. So we are like the Yale School of Music. So we have professional students and they come and then they end up teaching violin, an oboist in an orchestra. And there are a lot of excellent undergraduates at Yale, and they take lessons for credit in the School of Music. But then there's just a broad range of students taking courses in the humanities. And we're growing that program. We call it a BA instead of a BM, which is a highly structured program. I love the diverse range of students, economically and otherwise. We have a fantastic honors program, which would be kind of like the students that I, I taught for 10 years at Harvard. So the students in our honors program... We're going to give you a pass on that. <laughs> ...are often kind of that caliber of students, just very directed, beautiful writers.
0: Oh, that's terrific.
1: So there's it's just a huge range of students, I would say.
0: That is terrific. And so tell me a little bit about your life in, in Minnesota. How would you compare the the life you lead in America's heartland versus the life you had when you were, you know, at that school up in Cambridge?
1: At that school, right.
0: And I'm from the Midwest, so I've chosen to live on the East Coast most of my adult life, but, you know, there are differences.
1: There are differences, and something that fascinated me originally is students who want to stay in Minnesota, and I just would scratch my head and say, why? You know, because I think at Yale, we always had the sense of the world was open to us, and the idea of sort of going back to where we came from was really curious, and I think maybe some of us ended up doing that, but certainly it's not something that occurred to us in college. That's one difference that I I notice. I'm 10 minutes from downtown St. Paul, which I think after... New York and uh, Los Angeles has the best theater scene. So that's exciting to be really close to where a lot of that is happening.
0: That's terrific. And we uh, I know the Minnesota has beautiful nature, the Boundary Waters and some of the lakes in the North, just to name part of it. So if you were to go back and try to recreate part of your Yale experience and take everything you've learned academically and then dive back into the Yale experience, what would you do?
1: So what would I do differently at Yale? Yeah, I, you know, because you've, you've
0: spent your whole career in academia studying, become a specialist as you have. Would you go back and try to dive deeper as a younger person or broaden and do a, a wider variety of things?
1: Yeah, it was a really exciting time in the 80s. And there was this enormous sense of exploration socially, otherwise, you know, academically. I think there was such freedom and excitement to take graduate courses, to take advanced courses. And happily, at least in my field, having a little bit of an alphabet soup of a transcript didn't hurt at all in terms of getting into Columbia for my PhD, my master's and PhD. With funding, maybe I would have practiced a little bit less. I think I spent almost three hours a day in the practice room. And so now as I think about it, advising my students who I made sure are not serious musicians, I think you just, there's so much to experience in college. And I think it's a pity to spend that much time if you're not going to become a musician.
0: So of all the musicians that we hear in popular culture, are there any musicians you think are particularly technically a depth that you find with your classically trained ear to be compelling?
1: Oh, it's, you know, it's it's a great, absolutely great field. I love listening to hip hop. Through my son, I'm acquiring a taste for country music. But I think it's really important that the field of music kind of reinvent itself. And when you look at our conferences now, the dissertations that are being written Almost nobody is writing on Brahms or Bach, et cetera. So there's just a fascination with music in culture and especially with popular music, which makes sense.
0: Yeah, it absolutely does. Absolutely does. So you mentioned at the kickoff, the reunion. What are you looking for in the reunion experience? Do you want panels filled with meaty topics? Do you want pure socialization and you don't want to go to any panels? What, what is it, What would make the perfect reunion in your view?
1: I think a combination of panels. I mean, I'm really looking forward to some preliminary plans I've heard there and absolutely socialization. In some ways I I feel as if with the professional kind of goals that I had, you know, and that was a kind of a struggle with having three kids and now my kids are kind of on their way and I'm I'm really feeling that I can enjoy life. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that at the reunion. I'm I regret having missed some other reunions. Uh, You know, the publisher parish phenomenon is huge in the field. So actually, I'm looking forward to kind of kicking back and relaxing.
0: Yes, as am I, as am I. So we're at the point of our conversation where we get to our lightning round. And our lightning round is a series of very rapid fire questions. All right. All right. Most important class that you took at Yale?
1: Dadaism? Hmm.
0: So I know it's supposed to be rapid fire. Can you unpack unpack that a little bit? How was Dadaism important for you? What did that do to you intellectually? I find that that was not the answer I was expecting.
1: Well, it was an art history class, but we studied happenings and completely turned all expectations of what art is on, on its head. So that was a big inspiration as I turned back over the years. And as a scholar who does interdisciplinary work, it was really exciting to be exposed to that at the time.
0: Wow. That sounds great. Not a class I took, but I did take some interdisciplinary classes. So I know what you're talking about. What was your favorite social activity at Yale?
1: So my roommates and I were the first women to do Tuesday Night Club in Pearson.
0: Wow. Cutting
1: edge. So we got that room that absolutely there's a book about Tuesday Night Club somewhere in my basement that was published. And yeah, we lived with those beer signs during the week. So I, I loved that.
0: I did not know that about you. Fascinating. Well, maybe you have to-
1: Humanism in the raw.
0: Yes, yes. I think we're gonna have to uh, bring that back because our reunion is in Pearson. So we won't have a Tuesday night, but you know, we can be malleable <laughs> with the calendar, I suppose. The age old question, Pepe's or Sally's? Pepe's. Excellent.
1: And I've found ways to get back over the years.
0: Excellent. So final question, you mentioned you have three kids. As a parent and as an educator, what is your dream for them as they launch into adulthood? Do you have an overarching dream for your three children?
1: I do. I'm interested in a kind of a a better work balance than I think our generation managed. So that's something that I'd, I'd like to see them succeed in.
0: I think that is a great way to wrap this up. Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you in a couple of months.
0: I do too. Thanks. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. An in-person reunion. June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022, we will be gathering in Pearson College, be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th College Reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.